Well, good morning to all of you in the room. Good morning online. Glad that you're with us. Let me give you one uh, quick announcement from, uh, from me here. Uh, last Sunday night, we had our annual meeting, and we spent time working through questions and interacting and so on. Uh, but over the last several years, it's been increasingly challenging if there's not anything controversial to actually get enough people in the room to take a vote, right? We only need 50 people, and still we didn't have 50 people. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we've answered questions. If you have questions, you find a pastor or an overseer to talk to. Uh, we would love to talk to you about any of your questions. But we're going to take a vote after both services, or actually during the service, right at the end of the service, both services next week. We're not going to talk about anything because we've already done that. You've gotten the ballot via a pastor's update. It's been posted, and we had a, a meeting to talk about things. But if you do have questions, we welcome those. You come and talk to any of us, and then next week, we'll take the vote and make sure that we've dotted all our I's and crossed all our T's because we want to do what we do with integrity. So that's coming up. Um, Obviously, tomorrow is a super important holiday with um, Independence Day, and my encouragement is, is that you celebrate um, not only the independence we enjoy, but you celebrate God who's given that to you ultimately. We're so grateful for those who have worked so hard at a human level to uh, establish for us and protect for us a nation where we can gather and worship freely and we can live with minimum encumbrance from uh, outside sources pushing on us. We, we have a lot of freedom and, and that's really a good thing to celebrate. Ultimately, every good thing comes from God and so we want to thank him as well. So during your celebrations, I would encourage you to just take a few moments to do that. Um, right now, would you pray with me? Lord, as we, um, as we turn our hearts to your word, would you work in us what is pleasing to you? Would you shape us and grow us and challenge and encourage us? We do thank you that we are free to gather, and we do intercede for our country. We ask that this weekend as we celebrate freedom, we would understand that freedom um, is something that is is a great responsibility too, and that we would live as people who want to honor you, who want to show love and walk in righteousness. I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray for our President Biden and Vice President Harris and for Governor Newsom and for all those in governing positions over us. I pray your grace upon them. I pray that through them you would work your good pleasure, that you would lead them into your will that you would give them a deep heart desire to align themselves with what is right and true and good. And I pray that you'd work in them and in their families to bring them into saving relationship with you and to grow them in that. Lord, I pray that we as a people would be able to live in peace in such a way that we can bring glory to you and we can spread your fame in this world. We do thank you that we have that privilege and we don't take it lightly. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless us. And as we look into the word, that you would shape us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to look at the question of how you and I, as followers of Jesus, can walk faithfully in our day, our age, our culture, our society, our government, how we can live faithfully um, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and yet as also citizens of the realm that we're in here. Kind of a, a God and government um, understanding, but the, the real area we want to focus on is what does my country need from me? 
number of years ago, last service, lots of people remembered it personally. In this service, a lot of people will know its history. But um, John Kennedy gave a very moving speech where he said, ask not, yeah, you see, you guys know it too. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Right, and trying to tap into a desire that we should have to bring benefit and blessing and good. Now, that's a great thing to do as a politician. That's a great spirit to kind of tap into as Americans to say, let's, let's be those kinds of people. That is an absolute necessity. It is our birthright and our requirement if we're going to walk faithfully with Jesus. Of all people, the thing that we ought to be wrestling with as we look at engaging in our culture, engaging in our society, engaging in the world around us, in our government, is not what will be done for me, but what is it that I am to do for my country? Remember, when I came to faith, when you came to faith, we were brought into a new relationship with God. We've been reconciled, we've been transformed, and we are being transformed, and it is literally true, it would actually be better not to be here at all. It would be literally better for me to be in the presence of Jesus, so why has God left me here? What's the point of that? And the point of that is, he's got things he's still working out, and he's working them out through me and through you. And so my fruitfulness in this world my purpose in this world, my richness of life in this world, the things that I need to focus on in this world are what is it that God wants to do through me and who do I become as he's doing that? That's, that's really the only reason for me to be here. So it's literally true that of all people, we should be saying, not what's my country gonna do for me, but what am I going to do for my country? Our country is a wonderful gift from God that we get to live here, but it is not the kingdom of God, right? It is not, well, well Revelation eleven fifteen is like the climax of history, and it says in that hymn in the book of Revelation, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That's future. That means the United States is not in a special relationship with God. I am. Our relationship as a country, like every other country, is we are under his ultimate authority, but there's only one theocracy that's ever been, and that was Israel, and there will be a theocracy in the millennial reign, and in the meantime, it's secular governments all over the world, by God's design, that are ultimately accountable to him. And within those secular governments, he has set his people for a purpose of being salt and light so that the gospel can go forth so that the gospel of the kingdom be, can be proclaimed and the government of the kingdom can be previewed. The proclamation is preeminent, but there is a preview aspect. And how I live in this day and age in my land where God has put me is a, a stewardship and an opportunity. So what is it that God has put me here for? How do I live faithfully for Jesus in this day, in this age, in this time, and in this place? We're going to cover a ton of scripture. So two strategies. One, open your Bible to 
1 Peter chapter 2 and just stay there. And I'll refer to that passage twice, and it'll kind of set a backdrop. And that'll be fine. And you can listen to everything else, write it down, look it up later. That's one strategy. The other strategy is buckle up and try to stay up the best you can. But I've got markers in my Bible, so be forewarned, I'll be ahead of you. And just, it's okay. These passages, we're not going to need to unpack a lot of things because it's pretty evident what God is saying there. And we want to get some of the breadth of what God is doing as we look at these passages this morning. If you miss anything, you want to review anything, you want to wrestle through anything, you can always log on to our Facebook page. Some of you are already online. You can just look at the sermon again. You can do the same thing here in the room. Log on to Facebook, log on to our, our website, and the sermon will be there. So some of you are at um, First Peter, and others of you are going to try to stay up with me. So if you're trying to stay up with me, we're going to start in Philippians chapter 3, and here's what it says. It says... Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews 13, verse 14 says, for here in this world, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is not our lasting city. We are seeking something to come. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? Here's your new people that's supposed to look this way. Now he's going to explicitly tie that to how we as a new people connect with our larger world in the government. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, we'll stop there. The, the idea that I want to just latch on to from this passage that's going to kind of hold the rest of it together is when he talks to us and says, you should live as sojourners and exiles. I think those words are particularly helpful, especially the word exile, right? As you and I live in this world, we are part of another world, and yet we're part of this world. We have an allegiance to the kingdom of God, and yet we have allegiances here in this world. That's actually what the um, alcove is all about. You can see the the red, white, and blue banner there, and then it says, under God, one nation, which immediately evokes the, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, only it's, it's flipped over. Why? Well, because we want to look at that pledge differently. There's nothing wrong with the pledge as it exists. We would long for our nation, rightly understood, to be under God. It's not a theocracy. The Old Testament laws that were Israel's do not apply directly to our country in the way it is run, but the standards of God and righteousness is, is, is applicable to every nation. Every nation will be held accountable. We want our nation to operate under God in that sense. But what's really helpful is if I can think of this pledge with fresh thought, 
The pledge really should be this way. I pledge allegiance under God to this nation. Right? And it's not that the nation is under God. I hope that's true. That's a good aspiration. But I am under God, and the oath that I'm taking, the allegiance that I'm pledging is a secondary pledge. Foundational to living well in this world is anchoring that in my soul and not being confused. I'll illustrate it in a way that may help us understand it. Everywhere I go, almost every moment in my life, I wear a symbol of a pledge that I would die for. It's right here on my hand. You probably guessed it, right? Right there. For almost 36 years, I have poured every, everything that I have into this reality that I have pledged an allegiance to to this marriage, to this relationship, to this one woman that I have committed myself to and she has committed herself to me. And all of my money, all of my time, all of my energy, everything I have belongs to her. That is an allegiance that I have worked on. That is allegiance that I will die for if necessary. It is that important. And it is second. The moment it is not second is the moment I ruin everything. My wife, many of you know her, is truly extraordinary. She is amazing. But if she becomes first, she becomes God, and she's not that amazing. That is a role that she is not big enough to carry. It's unfair to her, it's unfair to me, and it dishonors God, and it destroys everything. For me to treat her as my God... For me to pledge an allegiance to her that is above an allegiance to him ruins it all. On the other hand, when my allegiance to him is absolutely defining, that actually empowers and strengthens that allegiance to her. It's the same thing as we live in our world. There's an allegiance that we have, there's a passion that we have for being part of our culture, for being part of our country, for being part of our society. That's good and appropriate but it is secondary. It is under God, under God, that we make that allegiance pledge. And here in 1 Peter, he gives us some language that will help us to unpack maybe a little bit of what that can look like because he calls us exiles. And in using that, Peter uses a word that would instantly evoke all kinds of imagery for his readers because they understand that the kingdom of God was once in exile. The people of Israel were once in exile, and there's a lot about that that would come flooding into their minds, and there's a lot about that will help us understand what it is to look like as we live in exile, um, kind of citizens of two realms, but it's the future coming realm that's definitive. How do we live that out? What's that supposed to look like? So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you're welcome to stay in, in 1 Peter, as I said, but you can also turn over to Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, let me give a word of caution. It is incredibly important that as we read passages like Jeremiah 29 and some of the other passages we look at, to recognize there were very specific things that were for Israel in that context that are theirs alone. We, we cannot overread this. We need to be very careful not to just read every verse as if it's simply for us. But every verse has been 
has been preserved for us, and there's something in every verse for us, and Peter has already put us onto the scent to say, think of yourselves as exiles. Think of the exile. Think of what the right and wrong way to go through the exile was. Now bring that into your world and say, what does that look like now? What might that look like for us? So Jeremiah 29 is actually a letter that's written from Jeremiah who is living in Jerusalem as his country is literally coming apart at the seams. It is nearly done. And they have had um, groups, big groups exiled to Babylon. And he's writing to the exiles in Babylon because the exiles are hoping we get to go back to Jerusalem really soon. And he's saying, whoa, no, 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 settle down. It's not going to be like that at all. In fact, it's just going to get worse here in the homeland. You're better off where you are, and here's what you need to do as you're there. So here's what it's like to live in exile. Verse 4 of Jeremiah 29, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So fundamental to being part of this culture is seeking its good, right? We need to be builders. We need to be encouragers. We need to be value adders. We need to see this place thrive the best that we can. We need to be fully engaged. That's what's called for because this is where we live and our lives are wrapped very much up with this place, this time. But it doesn't stop there. Skip down to verse 10. Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. He says, look, while you're there, be all there. Asterisk. But always be aware that your purpose and your ultimate fruitfulness and joy and richness of life come from beyond the boundaries of the land where you live. And they extend beyond the horizon of this time. There's something more. You're part of something bigger. And you always read this moment in this place through the lens of that ultimate reality. Live here in light of there. Live now in light of then. Settle in ish. Settle in ish. But always understand what you're really designed for is coming and it will be certain. So leave your life in that tension. But in that tension, then engage purposefully with the, um, the world around you. So if, if I'm going to thrive and follow Jesus faithfully in this day and age, and if I'm going to be the person that everyone else needs me to be, that's how I live. I engage, and I work for the good of everything around me, but I always have this lens. The ultimate meaning and significance and purpose and values are rooted beyond here and now, and those will inform this. 
So a question I need to be asking myself is, uh, is that the lens that I look at life through? Is that the lens that I look at life through? We actually have a really good concrete example of how to live well in exile. Um, there's, there's more than one, but we're going to look at three stories from Daniel to kind of build out a little bit more of what it means to really be faithful to Jesus, in our case, in his case, just faithful to the Lord, in exile, right? Daniel um, was taken into captivity as a young man. He winds up, through his faithfulness and his character and what God does in and through him, elevated into positions of leadership and authority and so on. And he has a series of things that happen to him. By the way, we're not going to do anywhere near say everything that could be said about this subject. There's a lot more that could be said about how to live in the world in which we live. We're just looking at a few important highlights. We're not even going to say everything about Daniel that we could. But Daniel 4 is a story that many will be familiar with. So I'm going to point us there. Daniel 4, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has had a terrible dream. And it's a dream that God has given him. And it's a dream that points to the future. And it's a dream that points to judgment. It's like, King, you're a powerful guy. You're way over impressed with yourself. You have, you have risen to this arrogant hubris and you will be judged. That's the essence of the dream. And so he calls in different people and they can't interpret it. So he reaches out for Daniel, who's his like, right-hand man in these things. And when Daniel comes in and here's the dream, here's Daniel's response, verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, in other words, Daniel's his Hebrew name, Belteshazzar's his Babylonian name. Daniel was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He's distressed. This is a message of judgment. And he's heartbroken over that. And it's not just he's trying to save his own life. It's always dangerous to speak truth to a despotic ruler. Right? But that's obviously not where Daniel's heart is because as he unpacks it, tells the king, then this is how he ends. He ends with a plea for the king to change. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Here's one thing that every government is accountable to God for, justice and mercy. Whether it's a secular government or not, God expects governments to judge justly and to show mercy. And that's what he calls Nebuchadnezzar to. He says, King, you're in big trouble, but God's merciful. If you will change, if you will just begin to show justice and mercy, if you'll stop exploiting the poor and taking advantage, if you'll treat people fairly, if you'll stop strutting around at the expense of other people, God will perhaps lengthen your prosperity. Perhaps he will give you grace in this moment. That's my longing for you, O King. So what do we see in Daniel? We see really two key things. He speaks truth to power without flinching. He speaks truth to power, but he speaks with compassion, right? He is bold, and he's redemptive. And if I'm going to live faithfully in this world as a representative of the kingdom of God engaged here, I've got to grab hold of both of those things. I've got to learn boldness and redemptive living. 
And if I focus on one at the expense of the other, I will wind up spinning off into a very dangerous zone. And we've probably, most of us, experienced that ourselves, and we've certainly seen it. What happens if I just focus on boldness but lose my heart of compassion and I stop being redemptive? I become a jerk. The technical term, jerk. I am obnoxious and grumpy and mean-spirited, and I'm tearing down, and I'm not accomplishing anything. Nobody likes me. And I'm not actually bringing any good to the table. And in the process, I'm very much at risk of actually turning quite selfish too. So in the long run, I actually wind up getting off track of even what I'm supposed to be bold about. I have to be bold, but I also have to have the compassion and be redemptive. What happens if I just focus on the compassion redemption side? Oh, well then I completely lose my footing, right? There's a time to call out evil, to say that's wrong and to say this is right, and to do so unapologetically. And if I'm always concerned about redemption and compassion, but it's not anchored in something, it will drift, and it will drift into this mushy, meaningless, let's all just be nice, that is actually contributing to the mess that we live in. I have to be both. I have to be bold and anchored, and I have to be compassionate and redemptive. That's what Daniel models. He doesn't flinch in giving the king hard news and in calling him to change, but he does so with a heart of compassion. He really wants to see the king change. The king's not his enemy, even though he's a wicked, wicked man. Am I bold? Am I redemptive? Am I caring? Next example from Daniel comes from the next chapter, chapter 5. It's another well-known passage. There's another king on the throne. His name is Belshazzar, not to be confused with Belteshazzar. That's Daniel's Babylonian name. Belshazzar is a Babylonian king. And Belshazzar is like a complete jerk, arrogant, He's, he's, uh, he's a brat, too. He's like this spoiled child. And he's living in a, in a completely profligate way. And in his hubris, God finally says, enough, judgment's coming. And so there's this big banquet going on. Everyone's there, and suddenly a hand appears, and it starts writing on the wall. Now, that's pretty freaky. Everyone gets scared. And the problem is they can see what the hand is writing, and they don't have a clue what it means. By this time, Daniel's elderly, and he's withdrawn from public service, and he's in retirement. And so the king calls in all of his various wise men and enchanters, and they have no idea what to say. And someone says, hey, I remember way back in the day, there was this guy, Daniel, who could figure out anything, right? The spirit of God was in him. He could tell you, let's pull him out of mothballs and see what he has to say. And so they send for Daniel, and he comes, and the king sets it up. And he says, here's what's going on. And then I'll pick up the story right there. Verse 16, but I have heard, this king talking to Daniel, I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. This is going to be great. You're going to have wealth and prominence and esteem all the things that you would want. And here's how Daniel answered. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. 
Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then he goes on and says, you're toast. You've blown it. God's judgment's coming. Sorry, that's the way it is. But notice how Daniel interacts, right? As he comes in, the king tries to turn his head, right? Tries to turn his head with wealth and power and, and influence, and it's easy to do. We go through life trying to do our thing, and then, wait, what's that? Hold on. And, and what happens is it becomes easy for us to begin to make adjustments that lead to compromise, right? Daniel is fearless, and he's faithful. He's fearless, and he's faithful, and he's unentangled as a result. We can get entangled if we're not equally fearless and faithful, if we allow our heads to be turned by influence or power, whatever it is that's being offered. The world is a very messy place, right? Between Jesus coming and starting his kingdom work and Jesus returning and perfecting it, we live in what you could call the messy middle. And it's not going to work textbook. And we should live with ideals, but even our ideals cannot fully navigate the world. So what we have to do is we have to become adept at making adjustments in light of reality that do not compromise ultimate things. We can't compromise even though we have to adjust. And there's a, an appropriate pragmatism, and then there's a deadly pragmatism. And Daniel understands, if I were to accept what you're offering, that would be absolutely a compromise. I'm not going to do that. That kind of thing happens. In fact, in, in the scripture we see, even in the history of Israel, there were times that they compromised, even the best of their leaders compromised, because that's the way things are done. This is the way you do it. And I know that's not what God called us to, but this really makes sense, and, and, and take an over-pragmatic approach. David is the greatest king they ever had, but the greatest moment in the kingdom came under his son Solomon. That was actually the high point during the first part of Solomon's reign. And then things quickly went downhill. Why? Because Solomon compromised. He was over-pragmatic. He married 700 wives, 300 concubines, right? It isn't just the guy's got a runaway libido. There's something more pragmatic at the base of much of that. All of these marriages to these wives, these are political alliances, He's building his power base, and he's working with it. He's been specifically commanded by God not to do that, but that's exactly what he's doing, and it's very clear in the text because one wife in particular gets talked about over and over and over again. He marries the daughter of Pharaoh. Like, talk about a feather in your cap. Talk about the alliance of alliances. First off, Solomon himself is no slouch. He's this powerful ruler over a regional empire. And he is allied with the most powerful ruler on the planet. That's his father-in-law, Pharaoh and Solomon. You can just see it on the T-shirts. Yeah, we got this thing wired, right? That's the marriage to Pharaoh's wife. And that's the marriage to all these other... He's, he's being too pragmatic. Instead of trusting God, he's working in the system the way it works. Only he's working too far into the system. And we're told in Scripture that it's actually his wives that turn his heart away from God and everything unravels. 
fact, it becomes two kingdoms. The northern kingdom does not have a single godly king. Every single one of them is terrible to worse. The, north, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, has some good kings and some really good kings and some really bad kings. There's actually four really good kings. We know who they are because they have a distinctive label applied to them. It says, he followed in the footsteps of his ancestor, David. Unlike others who didn't follow in the footsteps of David, but nonetheless did good things. There's four guys about whom it says, no, he actually followed like David, a man after God's own heart. Their names are Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. The last two in particular are stellar. All four of those guys, recorded for us in Scripture, stumbled over political entanglement because they lost this picture. They were over-pragmatic. In Asa's case, it brought perpetual war, and he wound up alienated and embittered towards God, and that's the way he died. In Jehoshaphat's case, it nearly cost him his life, and it did cost him a fortune. In Hezekiah's case, the prophet came in and rebuked him. In Josiah's case, it actually cost him his life. In each of those cases, these are good kings. These are the best kings they had. But in the process, they somehow got entangled, right? One of the things that Daniel shows us is we've got to work at living faithfully in this world, fearless and faithful, unentangled. Don't let anything turn your head. Anchor in God. Anchor first and fully in the kingdom of God, then engage with the world. That's what Daniel's showing us. The next thing Daniel shows us is in the next chapter, chapter 6, another very famous story, the story of the lion's den. Different king again. This time, Belshazzar has been judged. The Persians have come in. The guy who's ruling is named Darius, and I'll just read the first section of Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. It doesn't tell us what that is, but in context we know Daniel was competent, he was wise, he was hardworking, he was helpful, he was working for the good, he was faithful, he was reliable, and he was just set apart by by just being, if you will, the ideal employee. He was working at that. Because he was God's, he was working at serving well. And he did it so well, Darius said, wow, this guy's outshining everybody. I'll put him as number one, which doesn't go well if you're number two or three or seven or nine. You don't like that very much. And so that creates the rest of the story. Verse four, the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Not that he was without sin, but he walked with true integrity. There was nothing significant anyone had on him. So the men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. In other words, here's what we learn from Daniel. That excellent spirit, the one who is trustworthy, reliable, and building good, that ought to be who I am and known to be, but what I really need to be known for is my relationship 
to God. The only way these guys are going to find any inroad is if they can somehow pit the government against God because they know without a question Daniel is defined by his relationship with God and he will choose God. So as I seek to live in this world, I want to be the one who's competent and hardworking and wise and who can be trusted and, and who causes things to flourish as a Christian where people can see that I am doing the best that I can and good things are happening and that's actually arising out of my relationship with God. That they would know this is the defining thing. Not that he's a good guy, but that he's a God guy. And as you and I grow in that, God can unleash all kinds of things through us. That's what happened with Daniel. So do I add value in an obviously Christian way. Not because I show off, but because it's just clear where I'm rooted and where my relationship is, what defines me, where my identity is found. If I'm going to engage in my culture, my world, politics and social issues and work and all those things, I need to be anchored most in God. Let's move to the New Testament quickly. Um, well-known verses. Our Father in heaven, this is how Jesus taught them to pray, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or 1 Timothy 2. First of all then, first importance, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Part of living faithfully in this world, including how I engage with political social issues, is to live prayer forward. Live prayer forward with an eye to mission. The change that is going to matter the most and that's going to be enduring is going to be worked by God, not by me. Prayer has to lead the way. And what he's interested in does not line up completely congruently with what I might be interested in. It's about his mission. What's he wanting to accomplish? Look at what he says in 1 Timothy 2 when he says to pray. Pray, intercede, and specifically pray paraphrasing here, that we'll live in peace so the gospel can flourish. Pray so that the world will be situated so that the mission can be carried out well. So am I significantly prayerful? And what do I pray about? Would be really critical issues. If I want to walk faithfully with Jesus in this day, that's really important. If you have your Bible still open to 1 Peter 2, I told you I'd catch up with you again. Now we're there again. And I'll just highlight a couple of things to catch the flow again. Right? Verse 9, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that we may proclaim his excellencies. Verse 11, we're urged to live as sojourners and exiles. 12, we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they see our good works and glorify God. Verse 13 comes under the authorities of the world around us. And verse 14 and then verse 15, do this 
so that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right? Let me find my other verse here. Right here. Here's what it says in Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are, are excellent and profitable for people. We need to be people who are defined by good works that point to Jesus. Peter makes that clear, Titus makes that clear, and there's plenty of other places we could go, right? It's not just do good things, but do it in such a way that people see Jesus in that. So do my works speak as loudly as my words? Do my works speak as loudly as my words? And do they both point to Jesus? That's what the U.S. really needs from me. That's what my culture really needs from me. That's what this moment in time in history really needs from me, is that I would have works and words that are blessings and point people to Jesus. Is that how I'm actually living? Titus says, be zealous for that. Uche preached on this passage a few weeks ago. I'll just remind you of it in 2 Corinthians 10. It says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There's a war that's being waged. We need to make sure we're waging the right war. We're doing the right warfare and we know the real enemy. In all of the wrestling and tussling and all of the acrimony that we are just soaking in, in our world today, this gets lost. 
we have to fight, and we have to fight well, but that has to look differently. We use the weapons of spiritual warfare, the truth of God and the power of his spirit to tear down not people, strongholds. We tear down strongholds. And whoever it is that seems so far from me and so irritating to me is not the enemy. They have been taken captive by the enemy. Remember what we read in the last passages? That's who we were. We were just like that. And we've been rescued by God. And there's a time and a place for me to call somebody out. Somebody's being wicked. I need to say something. And I may need to be bold and strong and forceful at times. But the enemies are not flesh and blood. And what I seek to tear down, I seek to tear down with the truth and power of God, and those are the strongholds that exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ. They're not the people who are saying it. That's a really important and critical one for me to wrestle with. Do I tear down strongholds? Do I tear down people? What warfare am I fighting and which enemy? Lastly, and I'll just remind you of this, the book of Acts starts... Jesus is teaching his disciples for just a few more days about the kingdom of God. And they come up all excited and they say, is it at this moment that you're gonna restore the kingdom of Israel? They are still looking for a geopolitical reality. They're looking for things to go a certain way. And what does he say to them? He says, that's not your concern. The official Greek would be none of your beeswax, right? That's, there you go, now you've learned some Greek for the day. None of your beeswax when that's happening. That's God's concern you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're going to be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remote parts of the world. The book of Acts ends with Paul in prison receiving people. He's got freedom to have guests and it says he is unhindered preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Right? One of the things that we see modeled there that we have to have is to keep our eye on the ball. If I'm going to be a real help and a real blessing and a real encouragement, if I'm going to make a real difference in my culture, in my community, in my neighborhood, in my society, in my government, I have to keep my eye on the ball. I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and that speaks to everything, but the central axis is speaking about Jesus. Because the one thing that I actually have to offer that others do not is actual truth and the potential for the power of the Spirit of God to be unleashed in a transforming way. If I walk away from that, I am just one more voice in the crowd. I am just one more special interest group to be managed along with all the rest. But if I understand that I am a citizen of the kingdom and I am anchored there. My purpose, my fulfillment, my greatest good lies beyond the boundaries of this place and the horizon of this time, but I live in light of that here, then things can happen. If I really keep anchored, I'm making a pledge under God to this one nation. That's where the focus is. This is my secondary pledge. I'm going to give it my best. I'm going to give it all that I can. I'm going to give it in love. I'm going to give it in faithfulness. I'm going to give it in passion. Some of us may even be called on to die for that pledge. But it is secondary. And it is not 
able to bear the weight of being my primary focus. That's the kingdom of God. And as I live that out, God works. It is what he wants to do through me and who I become as he does that. That is so important. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your work in our lives and through our lives. We're grateful that you placed us here. It is a privilege to have complete freedom like this. We're so grateful. We do pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for our culture, for our society, for our education system, all of the things that we talk about and think about, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to respond and interact in loving, redemptive, bold, courageous, speaking truth to power, humble, caring, prayer-first, anchored in your kingdom kind of ways to do so in the power of your spirit, not in the power of the flesh. Lord, may our lives be an expression of that. Even as we give this offering, Lord, it may be an expression of that, that you would take these gifts and use them for your kingdom purposes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
team to go ahead and come and distribute the elements. I'll ask you to hold both elements, and we'll take them all together in just a moment. You know, on patriotic holidays in particular, one of the things that's often repeated is freedom is not free, which is true. It's been very costly. Some people have paid an extraordinary price. And the greatest freedom of all is the freedom that Jesus himself provides, and it came at an exquisite and extraordinary price, the cost of his own life. And with laying down his life, he has set us free from sin, from Satan, from death, from our own brokenness. He has set us on a path of restoration, and he has assured us of an ultimate outcome, and he's given us his spirit and brought us into relationship with his Father. There's nothing more glorious than that. And as we celebrate communion, that's what we're celebrating. We're remembering what he has done And this is for all of the family of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, by faith, we invite you to join us. But just take a few moments and meditate on the sacrifice and love of Christ and prepare your heart. Sin. 
On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, there's a new covenant with God. It comes through my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. I'd like to ask you to stand. We're going to sing one more song of worship as we leave. On your way out the door, we'll be taking our benevolence offering, which we use to help people who are in need. I encourage you to give as God would move you. Thanks. Thanks.